Well, we're going to read from the Bible together now. Last time Richard was with us, he looked at Revelation chapter 1, and this morning he's going to be continuing that series on Revelation, and we're going to look at what the Apostle John records for the church at Ephesus. This is Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 2, and it's page 1028 in the Pew Bibles, 1028. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. And this morning we're reading from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Revelation 2, beginning at verse 1. And this is God's word to us. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this morning. Good afternoon to you all. Um, It's good to be back here amongst you. Can I encourage you uh, to take your Bibles again and turn them to Revelation chapter 2, just so that you can have it in front of you as we work through it together. And as you do so, uh, allow me to pray for us all uh, in our time together now. Father God, we thank you that you have inspired these scriptures which we are going to study together now. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you address the church in the past and now in the present. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear the voice of your Holy Spirit speaking to us this morning. That we would leave this place singing resoundly within our hearts that great is the Lord and he is greatly to be praised. But Lord, we pray that you would ignite within us our hearts to burn for you, to rejoice in you and that we would find all our hope in you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard it said, you are what you eat, but I say unto you, you are what you love. Now you've heard, you are what you eat, right? You eat healthy food and you will be healthy. And if you're like me and you eat too many sweets, you become the sweetest man in all the world, right? That's how that works. You become what you eat. You are what you eat, but I say unto you, you are what you love. And that's something I think that's very helpful phrasing for us to consider this morning when we look at this passage. Let me tell you a little story, if you will, if you'll indulge me for two seconds. There are two men walking down the road and they come across this wizened figure down on the side, kind of got a cloak around him and a big pointy hat and a big long bushy beard that I could only dream of growing. And he's sitting there with his walking stick and he calls out to the two men on the road, travelers, 
where are you going? And they say, well, tis none of your business, dear sir, where we are going. And he says, but I have an offer for you, an adventure whereby you will find your heart's greatest desire. You will find what you truly love most. The two men kind of back and forth for a wee second, debating whether or not they're going to take up this wizened old figure on his offer. And finally they say, what have we got to lose? How often does it feel like you're living in a fairy tale? And so the wizened old figure takes them along and leads them to this moment where he puts his hand in the middle of nothing and opens a door to another world. And he says, when you step through this door, you will receive that which your heart loves the most. Now, on the way to this door, the two men discussed together what it is that they thought they loved the most. One man said, well, what I would love most in this world is the promotion at work. I would love to move up the ranks. I would love all the benefits that come with it, the better paycheck, the better office, the better this, the better that. And now standing in front of this magical portal, which could open up all the possibilities of all the things that he loves the most, he's now finding that he's terrified to walk through. Because does he actually know what it is that he loves the most? Is it that he loves his work so much that he wants to be promoted so that he could do a better job? Or is it that he can finally tell Bill in accounting where to go, what to do, and how to behave? Is it the power that he craves? Is it the bragging rights? What is it that he actually loves when he says he wants this? The other man walking along the road and he says, we've been on this journey together, you and I, for so long now, I, I really want to see my wife. I really miss her. And so when that door opens, I just know that she will be on the other side of this door. And he strides confidently towards it and then suddenly realizes as he gets close to the door that it's not his wife, but it's his next door neighbor. That she is standing on the other side of the door and he slams the door shut. How well do you know your heart? For you have heard it said, you are what you eat, but I say unto you, you are what you love, and you might not love what you think you love. And that is the point of my random little parable. You might not love what you think you love. How well do you know your own heart? Can you discern its motivations? Can you discern what it is that you really love above all, all else? Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so whenever you hear people say, follow your heart, you should be going, oh, really? What does your heart know about anything? You know, my heart will go on, sang Celine Dion, but you know, your heart will go on for what or for who? There's all these things about our heart, and yet the Bible tells us to weigh it up and to be careful. And we come to this letter addressed to the church in Ephesus and the heart and the love is the, ma the massive problem that exists there. Now, whenever we go through these letters and we consider the different things, we need to see what way that Jesus has structured these letters because for a Presbyterian minister, he's done it wonderfully that it's the same everywhere he goes. And, he might, and addressing one church against the other, he might leave one thing out and you go, well, that's the important part of that bit. So let's think about... And if you take notes, this is going to be very helpful for you when we consider what it is that he's saying to the churches and why it is. Because it's not hard for us to imagine ourselves sitting, receiving these letters and hearing it for ourselves. 
imagining our chest swell whenever he talks about the faithfulness and the good things about the church and then finding the rug pulled out under our feet whenever he says the immortal line to every single church, but this I have against you. And he lays them flat. And we feel our blind spots in our Christian life exposed under he whose eyes burn bright like fire. As I say, each letter follows the same structure. The first thing that comes up is that Jesus greets them. He gives them what the fancy word is, you know, his salutation to them. And it's usually in a reference to some sort of vision that was seen whenever I was here last time. We talked about Revelation chapter 1. He anchors his greeting to them in something that is important to that church. He then praises them for their faith or the activity of the church. He then has a critique that he lays out for the church. He then has a call to repentance for the church. And then he promises something to the one who will overcome And as I said, this is typical for everything that might run through the rest of the letters. And the greetings from Jesus, as we say, is at the beginning. And in chapter one, whilst the concluding promises always anticipate the final chapters of the book of Revelation. So the whole book has to be kept in your mind when you read these seven letters. It starts at the beginning and it ends at the end, which is not a very shocking thing to say out loud, but that's exactly what's happening. But what we're also going to do when we go through these seven churches is we're going to go on a bit of a tour guide. We're going to take you around the seven churches so that you get a feel of where it's at. Because Jesus is speaking not just to these churches in an ethereal sense, but in a concrete, rooted, contextualized sense by which these people are being spoken to in their culture and in their time. So Jesus' first letter is to the church in Ephesus. This is a church that if you've grown up in the church, you'll know incredibly well. This is what remains of Ephesus today. You'll see it on the screens. And it's a church that we would be familiar with, especially in the book of Acts and especially the letter to the Ephesians. And it's a church planted by the apostle Paul in and around the year 55. So quite early on, but during his third missionary journey. And the church was well known from the beginning for all the dramatic conversions of many from the cult of Diana and from the occult. There was a famous riot in Ephesus, which was the result of many people turning away from their pagan past to embracing Jesus, burning all of their books on the occult and witchcraft and wizardry. And the city itself was a buzzing metropolis. It was heaving and it was full of all sorts of business, being a seaport containing about a quarter of a million people. We might not think that's a very big city now, but remember there were a lot less people back then. And so that is a significant size for a city. It was the capital of the area, Asia Asia Minor, and it was an incredibly pagan city. You've heard of the seven wonders of the world. Well, Ephesus was home to one of them, uh, the temple of Artemis. And there people would have worshipped continually. And it's from this church that all the other churches that Jesus addresses were planted. That Paul planted Ephesus. And from this point, all these other churches sprang up around in the hub. And so Jesus greets the church in the imagery that we spent time considering last time. Jesus greets them as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven lampstands. A reminder to us that Jesus holds these churches in in his hand. That whatever the context is that they're living in, whatever struggles and strifes they might be enduring, he is the one who holds them secure and fast and sure in his hands. And he walks amongst these seven churches, the seven lampstands. He is in the very midst of them. That we might get the sense that we have to somehow bring God down whenever we're having difficulties. Or we might have to find him. But here Jesus is telling them that he's right in their midst, whether they realize it or not. He is present 
in the here and now. And this is an incredible reassurance for a city, uh, uh, that for this church in this city. This church has caused riots. They've dragged people out into the streets. They've chanted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for three hours in the amphitheater. They have rallied around to destroy and try and squeeze this church out. This church is surrounded by pagan worship and emperor worship. I don't know if you've ever been to a country where Christianity is not the number one religion, but I've been in the Middle East and I have walked into a church service while the call to prayer at the Islamic mosque has rung out. And there is something very surreal about walking into a church while other people are gathering to worship to a different God. Suddenly you find there's the rub There's the conflict. Do you know what it is in Bakna? It is the fact that how many people did we drive past this morning who were not coming here to worship, but were going somewhere else? Because you are what you love, right? They love the golf course on a Sunday morning. Oh my goodness, do people love the golf course on a Sunday morning. They love to go and do other things. Since COVID, do you know what people discovered? That brunch is a really good meal. And it's really nice on a Sunday. That's what they've discovered. They've discovered that they can go for walks on Sundays far away from where they live. They've realized that they can get out and they can embrace this world much more. Because we are what we love. And what we love will dictate what we do. And so we have this moment of this rub. But the problem is that for us in the West, we don't see this as a rub the same way as if they built a mosque in Bukna and a call to prayer went out. We might be a wee bit more offended about that than we would about the fact that our neighbours are not coming to church. Did you hear the call to worship this morning? Not from Stephen when he started off the service, but this morning while you were lying in your bed, you all heard a call, invisible, inaudible, but you rose, you got up, you got dressed, You prepared yourself, you got in the car, you drove here, you got out and you came. Some of you will have left family members at home. Some of you will have left neighbours busy doing other things. Some of you maybe came here today all by yourself because the call went out to the people of God to gather and to worship. You are what you love and therefore when he calls you whom your soul loves, you will respond in worship to gather as God's people. And what we have to recognize is that this culture of Ephesus is not too dissimilar from the culture of Bakna. It just looks incredibly different, but it's actually incredibly the same. And this church here in Ephesus has a plotted history of rising and falling in quite a short lifespan. From its earliest days, as we said, people have been burning their, their books. They've been practicing magic and paganism and all sorts of horrific things. And so they throw their books into the fire as a way of showing, I'm done with this. I'm finished with this. Those days are behind me and I will not return to them. It's very different than saying, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm putting the book on the book, bookshelf because temptation will always be there. It was their way of rescinding who they are, what they believed and what they practiced and saying, I'm starting anew. I have decided to follow Jesus and no turning back. I've walked out of Egypt and I'm not going back again. And so they'd left behind all of that. But very quickly, Paul warns the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts about the wolves who will come in to attack the sheep. He writes his letter to the Ephesians later, praising and thanking God for them. But soon Timothy will have to be sent to Ephesus to put things back into order again, the books of First and Second Timothy. 
And he had to be encouraged when he went into the church to preach the word. Now, this is a church we would have thought would be a really good church. And yet you consider that Timothy is being told when he gets there, preach the word, Timothy, in season and out of season, rebuke, reproof, and correct. This is what you have to do when you go to the church, Timothy, not to the Ephesian city. And so now 30 odd years later, this church seems, and it has to say the word, the stress has to be in the word, seems to be back on track. Because Jesus has some praises for the church when we consider the commendation of the church. Their deeds have been noteworthy. And he points it out to them and he says, you've been at hard work. You have done some hard work and you have persevered in the face of hardship. They refuse to tolerate the wicked men around them. They refuse to accept false teachers masquerading as apostles. In all of this, they are zealous and they are passionate and they have not grown weary of doing this work. And the church is buzzing with activity. The announcements would be half of what they are up to in the church service. The announcements would take up half an hour of the one hour church service on a Sunday morning. That is how busy these people are. Busy, busy, busy. And everyone is busy doing something. All sorts of ministries happening. And they're working hard to ensure that they continue to follow and to persevere in the faith that has been handed on to them. And they have refused, as we say, to compromise to the truth or to adapt their teaching to be more palatable to the culture around them. They are standing against the teaching that is being found in the city of Ephesus. And they are saying there is one way and his name is Jesus. And then later Jesus commends them for standing against the Nicolaitans. And we'll talk about them another week. But they are a group that are basically telling people, you can go to church on Sunday, you can party all Saturday night, go to church on Sunday and pick up where you left off from Saturday on Monday morning. That's what they're telling people. And they say, just as long as you go to church, you'll be okay. And what, well, we'll talk about them in a couple of weeks. But Jesus' point here is very clear. They are not to be followed, and he commends them for standing against them. They've proven themselves in this church to be faithful, faithful to Jesus. I mean, what a church. I mean, the Herald would have the church of Ephesus on the front cover with the minister in front of the building, and that is what they would be wanting to publish. Look at these guys. They are busy. They are active. They are holding fast to the truth. They are not compromising their faith whatsoever. This is a model church to be followed in our denomination. And it can be hard to imagine a more faithful church than the church in Ephesus. They've dotted all the I's and they've crossed all the T's in their big theological textbooks. But then Jesus puts his finger right on the one thing that they have forgotten. And it is absolutely devastating. In all their attention to detail and the pursuit of what is true, they have forgotten their first love. They are not loving what they think they love. You are what you love but you might not love what you think you love. And this is where Jesus comes and brings his critique to them. Because yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And that is God himself. God himself has to be their first love. This church has become a cold house. It is a loveless congregation. It affirms what is true, but there is no love there. And we know what these churches are like. Maybe you've gone and visited another church and you've heard quite the amazing sermon, but nobody spoke to you when you went in and out of the building. They gave you that nice smile because they knew that you were visiting, but they didn't talk to you. Maybe you've gone to some place and you thought, my goodness, that was some deep theology this morning. But there wasn't a smile in the building once. 
There wasn't a sense that these people loved each other. There wasn't a sense that these people loved Jesus. You can be amazed at their Bibles and their note-taking and the listening and all the incredible things that are happening. What a program of events. I'm sure the youth are very well catered for there. But if you look closely, did they love each other? Did they love Jesus? Remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, if I have not love, I am nothing but a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. We can exercise all the gifts of the Spirit. We can speak with the tongues of angels. We can do incredible deeds. We can raise the dead if we really wanted to. We can speak of our knowledge of the finer points of doctrine and explain an obscure passage. But if we don't love, then it's all noise, isn't it? Nobody's going to listen. Background noise, we become irrelevant an irritant, maybe at worst. But the very worst thing is that we can be ignored, isn't it? White noise, background noise, that nobody sees this gathering on the road and says that is where the community of love exists. Because that is what has to be seen. That's what has to be recognized in our hearts. And it's no small thing what Jesus is pointing out to them, and it's an incredibly dire warning to us all. And I sit under this myself because, as um, one famous book writer puts it, um, Paul Tripp, he says, we can have big theological brains and we can have heart disease. We can have brains that love to read, but we cannot have hearts that love at the same time. We can be proud of believing the right things, and we can be proud of doing the right thing, but we can profoundly miss the point. Gentlemen, you can do whatever you want on Valentine's Day to show your wife that you love her. But on the day afterwards, if you don't keep loving her and showing her that you love her, Valentine's Day was a waste of money. If you're not loving her on the 13th of February and the 15th of February, you have failed in your task that God has given you to love her as Christ loves the church. It has to be continual. It has to be constant, it has to be faithful, and it has to be real. There's no point in putting on a show on the 14th of February if it's not real. I realise I picked on the men there. Ladies, it goes the same for you as well. We deserve being pampered as well. We deserve an opportunity to kick up our feet and enjoy ourselves and be told that we're lovely and that we're very nice and that we're very handsome. And I think that will go a long way. And I hope my wife's watching on the live stream. But it's that whole thing, isn't it? You know a marriage that's full of love. And you know a marriage where the love has grown cold. You know a marriage where the elderly couple are sitting in the cafe and they're laughing and they're giggling and they're still going, I can't believe you did that or I can't, you know, and you go, wow. I mean, the, the romantic in me goes, I want to be just like that. And you know the cafe as well where they walk in and they sit down and they don't talk to each other. Now, I know not everybody expresses love in the same way, don't get me wrong. But the idea is still there. You want to see it, feel it, notice it, have it. And it's the same in the church because Christ uses the picture of Jesus and the church in the same way as a husband and a wife. We are to respond to our spouse, Christ, in love and to love him above all other things. And this is then when the warning is given. If you do not repent, if you do not catch yourself on, check your heart for the heart disease, if you don't ask the question, if you are what you love, th then what is it that I love? 
And where is my heart going wrong? If you don't repent, Jesus warns he will come and he will remove the lampstand from them. Now, I've, I've been here. My story is that I tried to race my dad down the steps, running down the steps. Um, he took one step as the joke and uh, I kept running and I pulled some horrific muscle on my quads and ended up limping for the rest of the holiday when I was about 14, 15. It was brutal, brutal. Um, that's why I'm bad at sports. That's my excuse anyway. But the funny thing about the city of Ephesus is that you can go there and you can see they've scraped it. You know, sometimes you see, um, forgive me if you have these, the fish on the back of the car um, that tells everybody that you've got a Christian car. Um, but it's that idea that they had those engraved onto the streets and the fish pointed the direction that would take you to the church. So if you landed in Ephesus to, for business, the underground church had carved fish into the streets and onto the pavement to direct you to where the church met, which was pretty cool. Here's the thing, in all the pictures you've seen of Ephesus, does anybody live there? Did you see a living soul? It's a tourist trap. That's what it is now. Nobody lives in Ephesus. So when we see the warning that Jesus gives here about the lampstand being removed, we have to see that this is exactly what happened. The lampstand was snuffed out and it was taken away. The seriousness of the warning tells us something of the seriousness of the church's condition. It means that we have to grapple with what does it mean to forsake your first love. A teacher of the law approached Jesus and asked him, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And tied together in the mind of Jesus are these two commands, love God and love your neighbor. And if we fail to love God, we will inevitably fail to love our neighbor because the apostle John tells us that it's impossible to say, I love God and hate your brother. It's impossible to say, I love God and hate my sister. It's impossible for that to be. The same apostle who told us that God is love, that love comes from God, and that anyone who has been born of God loves. If you find that you have not got love in your heart for your brother or sister, that might be a moment where your spiritual health check has just given you bad results. If you find that you're choosing other things over the worship of God and the worship and community of God, you might find that your health heart check has given you bad results. And it's an incredibly serious warning because you can do all the right things as a church and it can be all very impressive, but a lack of love for God and for others does not show a vibrancy of life, but it shows the horror of death. Our hearts should be ablaze with love for God and others when we consider the truths of the gospel. We should think about the wonders and the glories of the truth of the gospel in such a way that it compels people to want to come and to see more and to hear more. And it's incredibly important to study the scriptures. It's of paramount importance that Christians get together to search the word of God, to study it, but Christians therefore must spend more time together in doing it. It's a community exercise, but it must always be not for the knowledge of it, but that we might love him more. It has to be directed into the heart. So let me ask some questions. There are many who love theology, but do they love God? There are many who love doing things for God and they're busy. And my goodness, if there's a light on in the church hall, they are there. Whether it's for them or not, they are there. But do they love God or do they love to be busy in the church? There are many who argue and contend that we should have the right morals and the right values and the right everything and the culture warriors, but are they fighting to win a culture war or are they fighting for the advancement of Christ's kingdom? 
in the world. And the fear is that we can say and do all the right things, but the real question is, are we doing any of them out of a passion and a love for the risen Jesus? Because we are what we love, but we might not love what we think that we love. And we might say we're contending for the gospel, but we're actually contending for our political party. We might say that we're contending for the gospel, but we're actually contending for us to be right and them to be wrong. There's a lot of ways that we can slip up here because the heart is deceitful above all things. And you think you've mastered it, but it will find another way to trick us. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're examining your heart and you're saying, okay, so if my love has grown cold, what is it I'm supposed to do? Have other activities or other people taken that prime of place? So then what we need to do is we need to hear the words of Jesus, to remember from where it is that we have fallen, to remember how things were at the beginning of our faith, the adoration, the joy of time together, the pleasure of the saints gathering together, to remember the early days of following Jesus and to consider what inspired us to such zeal and passion and to remember the cross and to remember God's goodness for you at the cross, that Christ died for you, not because you were good, but because you were a sinner, not because you were godly, but because you were ungodly, not because you were strong, but because you were weak and that Christ died for you then and not because of your performance now. And so when Jesus commands us, he also invites us to repent, to turn away from a coldness in our faith and to embrace him in the warmth of his love for us, to repent and be restored to him who loves us. And it means then that we need more time together. And it means that we need more time in the word together and more time praying together and more time living this together because there is a carrot and a stick here because with one hand, Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will remove the lampstand the lampstand, which is a menorah that was lit to symbolize the light and the presence of God with his people. And they were to symbolize the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And that's the stick. I'll take away your lampstand. And the Ephesian church is told, but if you overcome, I will give you the real thing. I will give you access to the tree of life. Because the promise to this church is that if they overcome their loveless hearts, they will gain the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Listen to the words from Revelation chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." you will gain eternal life. Fail to repent and I will remove the light from you. But overcome by repenting and you will gain access to the tree of life. You will have eternal life. And eternal life is not this life continued. It is a quantity and a quality of life that we cannot imagine. That is what eternal life is. But consider as well, that this is the tree that was barred to Adam and Eve after the fall. And now he graciously opens it up and says, this is for you. This is for you. If you will but repent and come back to your first love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words. They expose our hearts to the truth of who we are to the fickleness of our affections because Lord too often we are won over by the things of this world 
and we are not won over by you. Lord, we pray that you would wrestle us and that you would win and that our hearts would be yours and that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul and all of our strength, just as you have commanded us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.